Hello, it's Alex here and you're listening to the third and final part of the Faith in a Hostile World series. In this episode, we will be digging into the book of Esther as we explore some of the hostility the world can provide and how faith can help navigate through that. I'm joined by Paul, Miriam and Lauren to discuss some of the issues and questions raised during the series of Esther. Before we dive into this conversation, here's a quick reminder of what the series is all about. The world we live in is hostile to faith in Jesus. Open Doors reports that in 2018, 215 million Christians faced persecution of some kind, and one in nine Christians experienced a high level of persecution. 4,136 Christians were killed for faith-related reasons in 2018, which is about 11 Christians per day. Additionally, 1,266 churches or Christian buildings were attacked, and 2,625 Christians were arrested, detained, or imprisoned without trial. Open Doors expects these fears to rise by about 14% across 2019. In Australia, these figures and incidents can seem very foreign. We are fortunate to live in a country where persecution for our faith in Jesus is unlikely to take these forms. However, we all inhabit various worlds, some of which can be hostile to our faith. Some of us know what it's like to be the only follower of Jesus in our family, to notice the eye rolls whenever we mention God or anything connected to church. We know what it feels like to be isolated, occasionally ridiculed, or treated with pity and confusion. Some of us spend time in the world of university, where atheism is presumed and belief in God is treated as a weakness or deficiency. We've learnt to keep our mouths shut in class discussions about ethics or politics, or of the origins of morality, to avoid increased scorn and insult. Some of us inhabit the world of the workplace, a world where materialism and individualism rule. We're daily confronted by the lure of more money, more status, and constant self-promotion, and struggle to resist engaging in workplace gossip and complaints about superiors. We live in other worlds too, friendship groups, sporting teams, share houses, social clubs, and others. Worlds in which it can be hard to have faith in Jesus. Living out faith in God in a hostile world is not a new phenomenon. This term we'll be considering three Old Testament characters, Ruth, Esther, and Daniel, who sought to be faithful to God in hostile worlds. We'll consider how these three young adults sought to remain faithful to God despite the hostility and pressure of the world around them. Let's pray that God would encourage us through these individuals as we seek to live out our faith in Jesus in each hostile world that we inhabit. All right, well, I'm here with Miriam, Paul and Lauren, and we are talking about the book of Esther, which is really exciting. So how's everyone feeling today? Feeling good. 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 Feeling yeah. good. Uh, so each of you preached at some stage over this series of faith in a hostile world on the book of Esther. Now, to get the ball rolling, I just thought, let's put ourselves in Esther's shoes here. Uh, she had this opportunity where the king was like, you can, you know, have anything. Like, you know, even after half the kingdom, what is your wish? Now, let's start with you, Miriam. What, what would be your wish if you were in Esther's shoes, queen of wherever that was? What do you want? <laughs> um, other than to not be a queen in, in exile. Um, <laughs> well, the other time in the Bible that someone offers half the kingdom... The answer is the head of John the Baptist. So 
I mean, I could go the biblical route, yeah. but <laughs> um, perhaps, uh, I don't know, I just feel really bad for, like, all the women who went and spent one night with a teen and then lived in, like, their own little palace and never had to, never got to come back and have a life by themselves, mm-hmm. never got to leave. Um, so I'd sort of want to set up something for them. Maybe like the a theme park yeah. or a concubine, you know, free the concubine. concubine. Theme park. <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not a concubine theme park. Okay. But to free the concubines. Yeah. yeah. That'd be cool. Cool. I think the, I mean, the, I think what she asked for was great. Yeah. Aside yeah. from that. Exactly. Let's just say well, that's, that's been done. I was also thinking just of the, the extent of the Persian kingdom at this time, 127 provinces mm. from east to west, dipping into India, going all the way back to... Turkey, I think. I'm not exactly sure how far west it went. I think, how about a trip? Like, just a bit of travel, <laughs> yeah. see the world. Just do a road trip, man. Right? Yeah, I reckon that could be, that could be pretty special. Be, yeah, nice. Nice. Well, look, I think if I were Esther, I would ask my husband, uh, King Xerxes, uh, for a divorce. <laughs> I mean, seriously, read Esther yes. chapter one. Like, who wants to be married to that guy? Yeah. But I think, you know, to, like, keep in line with her kind of, like, providential ascendancy, like, I think... The terms of the divorce would be like he would be deposed, like he would no longer sure, be king. Sure. Yeah. So then I could still like free the people and like continue sure. on the story. I've thought about this. Should do like a yeah, fan yeah. fiction version of Esther. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> you write your alternative timeline. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're gonna get stuck into this. So over the course of Esther, uh, you two, Miriam and Lauren, you spoke on Esther one to three, mm-hmm. and then Paul, you did pretty much the rest four to six, and then seven to ten. I've got a few questions from each of those sections, but feel free to jump in on in any of them, regardless if you preached on it or not. So starting with Esther 1 to 3, Lauren, do you want to just give us a quick synopsis of what happened in 1 to 3? Sure. So we meet uh, King Xerxes in Chapter 1, and through a fairly ridiculous turn of events and a royal hissy fit, uh, he gets rid of his queen. Um, and so they make a new search over the kingdom, um, and that's where we meet Esther, who's a young Jewish woman, and she's the one who pleases the king the most. Um, we don't want to think too much about what that really meant, um, <laughs> but she then becomes queen, um, and it's her relative Mordecai that we also meet, and we hear that he offends uh, Haman, who's one of the royal officials. Um, Haman wants everyone to, to bow down to him, and Mordecai refuses, and so Haman throws another kind of royal hissy fit, and orders that all the Jews should be annihilated. Um, and that's kind of where we end Chapter 3 on this cliffhanger. The city is bewildered and, yeah, it's quite something. Yeah. Last time on Esther. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so, that, so we kind of get to the end of Chapter 3 and it's left on this moment of the unknown and a bit of darkness. And so we've got a couple of questions here just around that. So more often than not, we actually do kind of live in this unknown. We don't always know what's going to happen in Chapter 4 through to 10. Uh, What's some habits or attitudes that we can cultivate to best live through this time of unknown? I think an interesting one, just to jump ahead a little bit, is actually what Mordecai does, which is to sit down and to grieve Mm. and to um, say, this is a disaster, this is awful, I'm going to grieve and I'm going to grieve publicly. Um, I'm not going to pretend that everything's fine or that my people are fine or that this is not a horrifying experience. Um, And through that grief, something happens, and through that public grief, something happens, but even if that weren't the case, I think it's helpful to know that um, we have a biblical example of someone who just sits down and grieves publicly because things are wrong with the world mm. and mm. that should happen. We should do mm. that. Mm. Yeah, it's good. a good kind of place to start. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think kind of on the back of that, I think cultivating and kind of learning the habit of what it means to pray 
in all circumstances, like mm-hmm. praying in grief, praying when God seems absent or when mm-hmm. things are confusing, when we're angry at God or, or even like apathetic towards God. I think we, there's a temptation to just not pray like because mm-hmm. we don't know how, we don't know, like we just don't feel like it. But I think it's really important and, and enriching for our faith to know how to pray in all circumstances because mm-hmm. God is the same in all circumstances. He's unchanging and... And I think the Psalms are a beautiful resource for that. And I talked Mm. a little bit about that in my message, like Psalm 88, you know, it's this really dark, like lament Mm. Psalm. He feels abandoned by God, but he's telling God about that. Mm. Like it's a real bold faith. And I think that's such a great, um, yeah, habit to cultivate, knowing how to pray in all circumstances, knowing how to worship in all circumstances. Mm. Mm. Maybe linking from that as well, reminding ourselves of the things we can be confident of even mm. if it's not where this story's going mm. or who's going to survive this you know, horrific turn of events, but particularly for us as Christians, knowing that our faith is secure because of what Jesus has done and trusting in the promises of God mm. um, and actually basing our understanding or our, our grasp of God's love on those things rather than our present circumstances. Um, so if we keep examining our lives for evidence of God's love, sometimes we'll think it's there, sometimes we'll think it's not. But mm. if we keep looking to what Jesus has done on the cross as evidence of God's love, then that's going to stay the same regardless of our current mm. circumstances. It's really good. Um, Miriam, you touched on grief just then as well. Mm. What is some encouragement that you would give to someone who's in the midst of grief right now? So there might be someone that's listening right now and like, okay, you said, you know, just sit in the grief. I'm sitting in it now and it really sucks. But what sort of words of encouragement could you give to someone in that situation? Uh, I think I'd start with saying it does suck and I'm really sorry. Mm. Um, I think God's really good at naming that. Um, and it's sitting with grief and I think we see that the whole way through the Bible and even in Jesus weeping over Lazarus even though he knew what was to come even though he knew life and regeneration was coming he still wept over the grief Um, I think just to back up a little bit to jump back to your previous question because I think it connects through um, I had a lecturer once who told me that the spiritual disciplines don't bring us closer to God, but the spiritual disciplines do bring us closer to God, um, which he was about as infuriating as he sounds. But <laughs> uh, it was a really helpful kind of concept of we build uh, these structures and these practices of remembering who God is uh, and what he's about when times are good so that when they're not, we know what we can lean on. Mm-hmm. And the Jews did this throughout their history, even the book of Esther itself and a lot of other books are built to be uh, read and remembered, to remember God's faithfulness in hard times. So I think um, sitting and acknowledging grief, remembering that God is faithful anyway. Um, I think I would say small celebrations. Um, so it can be really helpful to think of what are the things that we can be thankful for. Um, and I know that I've had times in grief where I've hated someone suggesting that to me mm. because it's felt calloused and unnecessary. Um, and if that's where someone is at and they just want to be sad, then that's okay too. But I have found in time that learning to celebrate um, everything that is good has helped me to remember that God is still sovereign. Mm. Um, and then looking beyond that, knowing that uh, God is still sovereign and therefore whatever grief I'm living in at the moment um, is not God's defeat uh, and actually what does God's victory in this place look like? Does it mean that he still holds me and that somehow at the end of the day I'm still in one piece even though it doesn't feel that way? 
uh, does it mean that we are looking forward to the future of the healing of the world um, and how much more do we want that um, and how much more does grief make us realize the need for Jesus and how good he is to have come and to love us as he does Mm. Um, so I think sitting with where you are and looking to what's to come and how the two interact would be my big point Mm. Mm. it's good anyone else have anything else they wanted to add on to that I feel like Miriam summarized it really well yeah Yeah. cool Um, yeah some really good words I think um, moving through that through to Esther 4 to 6 um, Paul, do you want to just give us a rundown of what happens next? We've left, been left at this cliffhanger of the Jews have been set, said to be killed on a particular day. What happens? Sure. So from Esther 4, Esther and Mordecai have a conversation through one of Esther's servants about what to do. And um, Esther comes to the conviction that she needs to go before the king. And then she asks her community to pray for her before she does that. And then in chapter 5, she does go before the king and makes her request, despite the risks, despite the risk of her losing her life for that. And the king gives his approval. And so then she has Haman and the king to a banquet. And uh, then after the banquet, Haman uh, sees Mordecai. He's infuriated again and so sets up plans to kill Mordecai immediately. And then we have the king's restless night, which is where the story gets a bit kind of Shakespearean. And the king can't sleep. The history books are read. The king hears of Mordecai's saving his life from the previous chapters. He wants to honor Mordecai. It's probably around dawn, Haman comes in and is expecting the king to honour him, and yet the king requests him to honour the enemy that he wants to see executed that very day. And the story finishes with Haman again humiliated back with his family and friends, and then summoned to the king, the queen's second banquet for him and King Xerxes. So there's a there's a kind of a, a shift that takes place in chapters four to six where um, yeah, we see Haman being forced to honour Mordecai despite his desire to kill him. Mm. So in this section, we you spoke about a voluntary risk. So Esther put herself on the line by yeah. going and agreeing to help the Jews. And I think for our, like us, when we look at this story, we're like, okay, that's a really good valid risk. Like, you know, it's the right thing to do in the whole scheme of the book. That risk paid off. Mm. Uh, in our day-to-day life, so there's often a lot of times where we think, oh, I could take a risk here or take a risk there. How do we pick the right battles, so to speak, in, in our life where... Um, you know, sometimes, oh, is it worth the risk? Is it not? Like, how do we know when it is the right time to make that voluntary risk? It's a really good question. I think it can be quite tricky. Um, I've just been reading some of Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer biography at the moment, and it's very interesting to hear about the way he was thinking about things before he started joining the conspiracy against Nazi Germany. And for him, it was a it was a matter of obedience to God that actually. Um, he was required to speak out for those who were being persecuted in his country, significantly the Jewish people, um, because he saw that as, as part of what it meant to be obedient to God where he was. Um, so I would say that's the first thing. If, it, if it's a matter of being obedient to God, mm. it's something we should be called to do. The other thing, and this is maybe that second question about picking the right battles, is is seeing what your opportunities and position are. Mm. Um, you're not the only Christian out there who will have an opportunity to do something, most likely, but this might be an opportunity that you particularly have. Esther was in a particular position where she could have a credible influence on the king. Sometimes we might be in that situation. Sometimes it might be our voice at work or amongst some friends that has a particular level of respect or something to it. Sometimes it might be a, a particular cultural community that we actually have a voice in. Um, I'm sure you can think of examples. Remember, I think of like the 
you know, the secular poetry scene or something. I don't have a voice in that scene, but I know, you know, that's that's part of your world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so knowing where you've got maybe a particular opportunity and position and, mm-hmm. and to weigh those things up. That's probably all I'll say. Just to kind of add to that, I don't think Hester saw herself as having much of a voice in that space initially. Mm-hmm. So we see in her conversation with Mordecai that her response is, if I walk in there, I'm dead. Basically, why why is one more dead person going to help? Like, mm-hmm. um, I have nothing in this situation. And I think he goes back to her and, and he kind of says to her, well, the chances are you're going to die anyway, so you may as well do something with it. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a bit of a rough response. Um, but she still has the choice to kind of deny it. And we see this in kind of society now that we do denial really well mm-hmm. and we do ignoring kind of... Um, situations that are unpleasant around us really well, particularly with social media and the way we interact with the world. Mm. Um, and she still had that option, but she then chose to actually go and speak up into that space. So she didn't yeah. see herself as being the powerful voice. Um, and often we don't see ourselves as being the voice in our communities. Mm. Um, and, and also what I find interesting with that is that uh, she took a situation of intense disempowerment, um, even though she was the queen she's not a queen that we might think of now like queen elizabeth yeah. mm. um she's you know a um figure who's meant to look nice at parties and doesn't really get much say in much else in her mm. life uh and yet she goes in and she uses the one thing that she has at her disposal um which is the ability to um, offer hospitality and she then asks the king and Haman into her um home her courts uh, she flips the situation and she shows incredible wisdom by inverting the dynamic and inverting the power situation even in that space uh, and while she is offering them hospitality she then is able to ask something of them so not only does she show great courage but she actually shows incredible wisdom but neither of those um, things or options that she had to do were obvious at the start mm-hmm. and I think that's really important we don't often look in our situations and think yeah, I'm definitely the king in this situation and mm. I could have a strong voice. Mm. Um, it can look like we're weak, and we might be, but we see consistently that God uses weakness and he inverts those dynamics. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think a lot of people that listen to that are like, oh, yeah, like I would love to take a risk, but I'm not the queen. I'm not, gonna, I can't put, I'm not in a situation where I can be a voice, but what you're saying is that you might be. Mm. You might not know it yet, but you have an opportunity. Yeah, and she goes in there, and it might have failed as well. Mm. So she took a risk, and she may have ended up dying, and she may have just been one more dead body. Mm. Um, and she didn't know what that solution was going to be. And I think often we don't want to take risks unless we know that it's really going to pay off. Mm. But that's not what God asks of us. Mm. Yeah. He asks us to be obedient um, and to take risks if they're the right things to do. Mm. Yeah. So... There might be someone that's listening to this that's thinking about, oh, like something's happening at work that I want to make a sort of a stand for or, or have my voice on or maybe at uni or something. What's some advice you'd give to someone who's thinking about taking one of these voluntary risks? It's probably a couple of things that come to mind for me. I feel like classic prayer um, mm. to be praying about it but also asking <coughs> others to pray and we see that in Esther like she says to Mordecai like you know well it's veiled in Esther it's sort of fast but we can kind of read between the lines mm. that she's asking for that support I think that's a big one um, I think and, and Miriam sort of touched on this before sort of trusting in God's sovereignty and wisdom above your own like we may have our own ideas of what success looks like in taking the risk we sort of think oh yep it'll be best if it happens this way 
Um, but there's that great verse in you know, Isaiah 55, like God's thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. And so I think being sort of open to the idea that it may not necessarily work out the way that you want it to. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, we see that in Esther, like she says, well, if I perish, I perish. Or even in Daniel when, when the friends are in the furnace and they say, oh, our God, our God could deliver us, but even if he doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, so I yeah. think yeah really leaning into into god's wisdom um but the the third thing i thought as well is that i can't remember who it was but someone framing it and i guess again we see this in esther that mordecai says you know even if you don't do this deliverance could come from someone else and i think you know in my life when i've considered sort of taking a risk you can almost put this burden on yourself and think it's all up to me but it's actually, it's mm. not. And God mm. could actually do it through someone else. But if you choose not to do it, you're actually the one who misses out on sort of mm. being used by God. And so there's that sense of if you choose not to, it's not like, oh, gosh, I've ruined the whole like divine plan of the universe. <laughs> mm. But you yourself may have missed out on an opportunity to to, to be blessed, to be used mm. by God, to be an instrument. And yeah. you may get it wrong too, like for sure. Yeah, I've had some <laughs> pr- supremely awkward situations or times where I was like, "Wow, I went out there wanting to be a goodness witness for God, oh. and I just kind of was a jerk in that situation, yeah. or I just was an idiot, or I did a really bad job." Um, and it took me a while to wrap my head around the fact that God has grace with me as well as mm-hmm. others. That. Mm-hmm. Um, that he teaches and he grows us and he sent the disciples out before they, you know, he sent out the 72 before they even really knew who he was. Mm. And, mm. um, and he continues to grow us in our risk taking and in our obedience. Mm-hmm. Cool. So you'd almost say when the first question there, how do we pick the right battles? You're someone saying, well, just maybe just pick it and then you'll work out later. You might, <laughs> God might teach you a thing or two. <laughs> so yes and no. It's like part of it's like give it a whirl, sure. Mm. Um, and then another part of it's, I think there's a phrase that's like, is this the hill you want to die on? Mm. And I think it's a really poignant one because that goes straight back to Jesus on the cross. Um, and it's helpful to remember that in terms of, is this a battle that is actually honouring of the heart of Jesus? And if it is, then sure, this is a hill to die on. Mm. If not, then take a break, <laughs> or just just stop and do some listening. Mm. Yeah, we do need to work on that too. So Esther chapter six or four to six is about Esther, you know, agreeing to help the Jews and taking this big bold step. In seven to ten, what happens? Sure. So uh, from chapter seven, they still starts at Esther's second banquet. She's invited Xerxes and Haman again. She. Uh, sort of outs Haman there for seeking the annihilation of her people. She outs herself as well by acknowledging that she's Jewish. Um, and the tables do turn. Haman is then executed. Uh, Mordecai is brought into the, the palace, into the king's kind of inner circle and promoted. And Esther and Mordecai put together a new decree to try and counteract Haman's previous decree that would have led to the um, annihilation of the Jews. And then we hear about the day of the, the battles that take place between Jewish people and their enemies, and um, Jewish people have a great day of victory. Uh, 75,000 people die across the Persian Empire, and um, and the festival of Purim is established, a, a Jewish festival to remember the events of Esther, based around the name of the, the pure, the, the lot that was cast initially in chapter 3 to determine that date um, that was going to be the date for um, the genocide of Jewish people. Mm. Um, and so it's a great day of celebration. And then we hear finally about how great Mordecai was that he stood up for his people. That's roughly how the book ends. 
Cool. Which, like, don't get me wrong, but man, it's called Esther. Come on. Like, <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> She's the one who took, well, they all took a rest there. But it's called Esther for a reason. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> called Purim or something. Well, it's like, it's called <laughs> Esther because she took a rest and why does it need to end with Mordecai being the one who saved these people? But it, you could ask what came first, the title of the book, though. Like, if the book was written first. Mm. Maybe it should have been called Mordecai. Whoa. I like Esther. I'm happy with it. Because we can do that if you already I know. I think they, when they were writing, they're like, oh, we've had too many male names. I think we need to name one after a female. I think that's what they were thinking. Sure. I think God reached down and slapped someone around the head. And they're like, oh, that's right, women. Oh. Anyway. anyway. Esther's a good title. Esther's a very good title. It's not the hill you're going to die on. Definitely not. <laughs> it's excellent title. So... Uh, <laughs> This passage, we, we see a lot of this, uh, I guess, this tension of people going through trials, um, but also, like, you know, wanting, you know, the, whether it's the salvation or the freedom to come. Uh, and, Paul, you spoke a little bit about this tension of, you know, this, oh, geez, everything's so hard, and uh, I just want Jesus to come back and just to say, that, oh, but wait, like, my friend over here hasn't heard about Jesus, and they haven't, and so I want them to hear about Jesus, but I want Jesus to come back. What are some verses or, or stories in the Bible that you sort of lean on in those times where you really feel that tension? Yeah, I guess I was trying to really capture that sense that um, Old Testament, God's justice in the Old Testament looks quite different from God's justice in the New Testament because in the New Testament it's really focused at the cross of Jesus mm. rather than these events that take place that make us feel quite uncomfortable like the death of 75,000 people. Mm. But instead we see that um, Jesus actually takes on God's God's justice and judgment upon himself in our place. But that's right, there's also a day coming when all, all sin and evil will finally be tied up when Jesus returns. And, um, and our desire to see, especially for our friends and family, that their sin is dealt with at the cross of Jesus and not finally on that last day personally. Um, the, the, the verse that I used was from 2 Peter, which I always do like, and I have referred to it before, 2 Peter chapter 3, 8 and 9. Um, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So I find that really encouraging, not just explaining the reason for Jesus' delay, but also the heart of God that actually God celebrates when someone turns back to him in faith and repentance. Um, so that's where that's where I'd start. Okay. I think we see an example of that in the Old Testament as well, with um, Canaan being the promised land and Israel heading towards it and yet several times we see that God actually holds Israel back and has timing based on um, Canaan's sinfulness or non-sinfulness so he is not um, flinging judgment about for the sake of uh, no reason at all or for the sake of bringing his people into a nice place and yet simultaneously he's using that time to teach and grow his people into his people so we see this kind of sense of the tension that he holds of um, wanting to call nations to himself um, and growing his own people at the same time. And that the holding of one isn't the um, rejection of another or the delay of another. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that's really important to remember. Mm. Yeah, I think as well, whenever I think about trying to resolve or sit in that that tension of not really understanding oh, but why not this but why we're waiting for this and for me I always just just go back to the cross and, and I touched on this in my message I think about the the disciples at the cross you know before they 
you know, had the privilege of knowing what was going to happen next at the resurrection. They're sort of thinking, oh, why can't we just have God's victory now? Like, we mm. thought you were the Messiah. We thought we were going to have this peace and power and prosperity. And instead, you're now, you know, up there suffering and bleeding. And that would have made just no sense at all. Mm. But, like, we then know that from that actually came, like, the greatest triumph and redemption. And, again, it's that reminder that, that God's wisdom is just not our wisdom. And so I think when we struggle in those moments of tension of, wondering why Jesus hasn't come back or being like, oh, wait, but I want my friends to know. I Yeah, I just think back to the cross and it's just that ultimate reminder that God just knows so much more than we do um, and he's working in ways that we won't always understand, but his ways are always good. Mm-hmm. So that sort of brings us to the end of Esther. Uh, when you were working on what you were going to share on, at, on your, during your, through your sermon, sorry, what were some of the things that you really just, maybe a lesson or some a revelation or just a takeaway that you had from studying this book of Esther? I'm happy to start. I, I just think the way God works, I think, is is quite extraordinary through the book of Esther. I mean, it's true through the whole Bible, but I just think of um, the different things that take place in Esther that you think that it would have been so much simpler some other way. So I think that even, <laughs> like, how did Haman get into that position? You, you know what I mean? Why didn't God just step in? when King Xerxes was about to make that choice and kind of bump him across to mm-hmm. someone a little less kind of crazy. Um, but then I think of all the ways God was at work through you know, Queen Esther's position, through the sleepless night and the reading of the history books, um, even through Mordecai being able to uncover that plot, which eventually kind of gave a foothold for him to survive a couple more days, through the king's um, sort of almost surprising generosity, given his otherwise crazy nature to Esther and so I think just despite circumstances, the way that God can work through lots of different things, sometimes seemingly miraculous things, sometimes through ordinary human events, mm. um, but just keeping an eye out for the, the, the work of God and the acts of God through Esther. Mm. I think I learned that you shouldn't be a movie script writer. You're like, oh, we shouldn't have this random crazy, oh, we'll just get a guy in this. Like, <laughs> That's true. Won't make any bad decisions. I would then, like, oh, yeah. Happily ever after. <laughs> I would make boring, peaceful movies. <laughs> yeah. Everyone would be very calm. Be, yeah. <laughs> no one's screaming at the TV like, what? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Don't go down into the basement. Yeah. Yeah. We wouldn't need those dramas. <laughs> That's true. What else? What have we learnt from Esther? Mm, I think it's probably a bit similar to Paul, but I remember... You know, when I was first assigned Esther and sort of sat down and read it and thought, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with this? There's no mention of God. Like, you know, what do, what do I get from this? But I actually found it really quite profound and moving, that, that concept of, of how God is moving in the unseen and, and as Paul sort of touched on, working in ways that we don't necessarily understand but trusting that he is actually always at work. And I found that for me very just personally encouraging for whether just the season of my life and you know sometimes when things seem chaotic or sort of beyond our understanding or control just that that assurance of of who God is that his character is good and right and true and that he is always at work like always at work Mm. Um, even when we don't understand it or feel it or know it yeah I found that so encouraging Mm. I think there's a whole lot of little details that were really um, encouraging and intriguing but I really love kind of in a big picture way the fact that there's um, Esther and other books in the Bible that are set in uh, in an exile so in a time of God's people not where they should be not 
having done what they should be what they should have done um, by all appearances abandoned and yet God is not only still with them but whole books of the Bible are written about the work of God in those times mm-hmm. and the fact that uh, their apparent um, isolation or abandonment or despair is never God's uh, abandonment, never God's mm. isolation and never God's despair. And I think that's just really, we often think of ourselves as when I'm in a good place, then God is here and that's great. And when I'm in a bad place, then God has abandoned me. Mm. Um, and we know from the Bible that that's not the case, that he's deeply present in those times and still using and working and active in those times. Mm. Uh, and then the other one is just the fact that this Feast of Purim came out of that whole account um, and it is a feast that's named after the die that were thrown to pick the date of a genocide. Like, it's an awful, awful name. Mm. Um, mod- modern marketers would think it's a disaster uh, <laughs> because it's this taking of, of horror um, and saying, you know, you tried to harm us, but God turned us to good, and therefore how great is our God? And we see that, you know, a reflection of that later with the die that are cast for Jesus' clothes. But even then, with the fact that the cross is a symbol of Christianity, like this is this torture instrument, and yet we wear it around our necks. And that's not trivial. That's because God has taken something awful and made it into something not just good, but like insanely, incredibly great Mm -hmm. for us. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I love that Esther foreshadows that and helps us to understand what is happening in the New Testament Mm -hmm. through what God has done in the Old. Awesome. That's awesome. Really good stuff. I was just um, reminded of just, just a little light way to finish this um, message. When we're talking about the Festival of Purim, Christine sort of lent to me and she's like, I know this. I know this festival. I've heard of this. Where do I know it from? And afterwards we were talking about it. And for those that don't know, Christine and I are involved with Red Frogs, which is we do a lot of different party support and help people in whether it's schoolies, music festivals and stuff. But we actually got a request to come and help at a Purim party for <laughs> some potential underage drinking. So I thought it was quite funny. I did, some, I did some Googling on it too, and it was one of the slides which actually was out of place, but I found a, a, a festival poster for Purim Festival and it had like the band line up for this, I think it was in Israel, but yeah. like... Yeah, it was yeah a, I think you, did you have it on the side? Yeah, it was yeah. like a rock festival they yeah. had, which I thought... Yeah, it goes off. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's yeah. Well, awesome. Thanks for your time and sharing some of your thoughts around the book of Esther. Um, and that's kind of it for our Faith in a Hostile World series. So thank you for being on all the podcasts for no all of um, you guys jumping in today. <laughs> really pleasure. appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. Thank you. And there you have it, the third and final conversation of the Faith in a Hostile World series. As we wrap up this series, take some time to reflect on what you've learned during the series. For me, while discussing these topics on the podcast and in my small group, my perception of what a hostile world is changed. I thought coming into what we might purely look at the hostility that others show towards people of faith. And as the series unfolded, we looked more broadly at the hostility that can be faced throughout the human experience. Things like grief and hopelessness are experiences that are universal for humanity. And it's important to think how we can navigate through these experiences as people of faith. I hope you enjoy this series and that you take away even just one thing that may help your faith in a hostile world. On behalf of Q Baptist Church, thank you for listening to the Q&A podcast.